Well, good morning. All right, that's fine. <laughs> My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. It's uh, good to be with you this weekend. Uh, glad to see you. We are wrapping up our series in the book of Exodus. It's hard to believe uh, we've been in this book for five weeks. And as we said, we were uh, just flying over at significant altitude and just checking down really on the mountaintops of this book. And here we are today. We're not even halfway through the book and we are concluding our time together in it. So it seems a little bit unjust, uh, but it's what we're going to do this morning. And I think we're going to touch down on the last uh, piece of the human story that we're going to examine together and find that really does bring it home for us. We've, we've seen a lot in this series. We began, as we all begin, uh, captive, enslaved to sin with the people of Israel in Egypt. We watched God do some amazing things there. He reached down into his people there in Egypt and chose Moses. So we saw how we are chosen by God and how God specializes in choosing people who are not special. Week two, I was in Vestal and Bob was here, and we both got to break the news to everybody that we're just not special. And uh, kind of a hard thing to say, but when we realize that God, as Paul writes later in the New Testament, chooses the unwise to shame the wise, chooses the weak to shame the strong, uh, we get into what he's, what he's going after there as he chooses us to be his people. Week three, we saw how we're redeemed. We saw the blood payment of the lamb and how that's pictured in the New Testament uh, in Jesus Christ as his blood covers us. Last week, we saw how God sustains his people for life with him. He doesn't just call them out, but he uh, supplies everything they need for every step of the way. And today, we are, we are going to grab a hold of our identity as the people of God as we look into Exodus and find that we are people who are commissioned. We are commissioned. We've been given a specific mission by God. So God dramatically chose and delivered his people in Israel. He's got them now all together. And what he does next is really, really instrumental because it's in that we find how we are supposed to live as the people of God. Week by week, over and over in this series, we have been offering to you how if you are not, if you wouldn't identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, you could become that. And we are still here, ready to engage, ready to talk to you. Whether you've been uh, joining us online or here in the room, we have been uh, urging you to consider whether or not you could identify yourself as someone who is a follower of Jesus, part of the people of God. God is about to, in Exodus 19, um, say some specific things to his people as he's collected them now out of Egypt. And as he does, he's demonstrating his love for them, but not just for them. As he pours out his love on them and speaks to them, he's actually demonstrating his love for all people. And we're going to see how God's love for us is meant to spill out onto all people. So we have been commissioned. I want to get into this today by talking about marriage. Um, I, I don't know what your experience is with marriage. I understand for some people it can be sort of a delicate or sensitive issue to talk about. Um, my goal is really to use it as a picture of what we're going to look at today in the Bible. So uh, I, I want to try to talk about it because the Bible talks about it, and I want to try to talk about it in a sensitive way. Um, so that's what I'm going to attempt to do. You can be the judge if I pull that off. Kristen and I will have been married for 19 years next month. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, celebrating. Um, but the, I have been pursuing her for a long time. We've known each other for almost all our lives. 
and it's been a great privilege. But this pursuit sort of began long ago with uh, little gestures like hanging out by her locker in school, offering to carry her books. It was often drafty in school, very, very cold, and so I'd take my letterman's jacket and just offer for her to wear that thing um, and put it around her shoulders, and, and then I would write notes and letters and flowers, never enough flowers. You could ask her today, still, never enough flowers. Um, we're working on it. Um, but anyway, all these investments made, we got to the point where we were ready to commit our lives to each other. A lot of buildup, a lot of anticipation, and it culminated in this wedding ceremony. But a couple things happened in this wedding ceremony that I think it's important for us to notice. One, the pursuit and our identity as people who were belonging to each other really culminated in this ceremony where we made vows to each other. Essentially, in our vows, we sort of put in, in, a form, in formal writing, uh, in a formal way, publicly, the boundaries of our marriage. I promised her things. She promised me things. And these promises really formed the hedges, the boundaries, the fence, if you will, for our marriage. And we had this belief that somehow, in following these rules that we were putting down, these laws, that we were actually going to enjoy our marriage relationship. The other thing that happened in our wedding is that um, though it was the culmination of our pursuit of each other, it actually was the beginning. It was, it was the launching pad. It launched us into something new. It wasn't the finish line. I mean, you could just imagine all this pursuit and buildup and all this, uh, the, the direction we were headed, it came to this point where we got married and, and we made these vows and it was great. And, and then suddenly now that we've done that, We've arrived. And so, you know what? Getting into marriage a little bit, the boundaries kind of seem restrictive. You know, those, those vows, those covenants we made with each other, uh, they're kind of holding me back a little bit. And so I'm not really interested in keeping those. And honestly, I got what I wanted. I got married. And so now I've crossed the finish line. No more pursuit. We sort of threw off the pursuit. She's mine. I told her I loved her on the day we got married. Why do I need to tell her again? Right? And if you're thinking, what are you saying like, that sounds a little off. Good. It should sound off, because that's not what we did. And we all understand that it's not going to go well if that's what we do. Do we not understand that? Like, the, the vows we make to each other, those are meant to help us enjoy that relationship. And, and the ceremony really just propelled us into a lifelong commitment. We're locked in here now so that we're going to pursue each other for the rest of our lives. And our enjoyment of our marriage is really hinging on whether or not we're going to stay within those boundaries and whether or not we're going to continue to pursue each other. I made a commitment to her on that day. She made a commitment to me on that day. So long as we keep that commitment, we can enjoy what we have. But I think sometimes you and I, in really subtle ways, are duped into believing that all that's just kind of formality and it's not really true. We, we do. We, we believe this and we don't just believe it Within our marriage, we believe it in our relationship with God. See, marriage is a relationship that flourishes only within its boundaries. A marriage is a relationship where it really only is healthy and strong when the two people who have made the vows actually continue to pursue each other the way they said they would on their wedding day. We get it. It's less a destination. It's more an initiation into something. 
So we need to notice two things, and I'm going to spell it out real clear here, about marriage that I think if we can wrap our minds around them, we will understand what God is communicating to his people in the passage we're looking at today. All right, the first truth is this. Our vows, mine and Kristen's vows, marriage vows, are the result of an existing relationship. It wasn't like we backed our way into that ceremony, turned around and said our vows, and, and now we belong to each other. No, we, there was something there, and it brought us to the point where we're, we're ready to make these promises to each other. Okay, so it's the result of a relationship. It, it wasn't the gateway into one Our enjoyment of this relationship is contingent upon keeping our covenant vows. No one enjoys all that marriage is designed to provide by breaking the vows of that covenant. Secondly, our marriage launched us, our ceremony launched us into a lifelong pursuit of each other. It wasn't as though we got married and then the romance, the pursuit, gone. We didn't cross the finish line into anything. It was the beginning. It was merely the beginning, and we formalized it. It changed everything. There are things that I will never do again. It has forever changed how I relate to the opposite sex. I'm no longer a free agent. In the words of Solomon in Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. This is now a part of who I am. I belong to her, and it changes everything, and it has set the course and the practice for the rest of my life. So here we have God. Exodus chapter 19 is where we're going to be. So if you have a a Bible, a hard copy like this one, if you have a device, go ahead and navigate to Exodus 19. That's where we're going to be. And if you're new to the Bible, as all of us once were, no problem. We're going to show it to you on the screen, and you you can hang with us that way. If you're a little unsure how to get there, just elbow the person next to you and say, how do I get to Exodus 19? And they will help you out. So God has delivered his people, brought them out of Egypt. He's identified himself as their God. He's identified them as his people, and he's about to give some words to them. He's showing them how to live with him alone as their provider, with him alone as their leader. These people have been accustomed to Pharaoh. They've been accustomed to Egypt. They understood that. But now God has brought them out, and they are sort of insecure, like in this, what am I supposed to do? Now we're out, like we've come through the Red Sea. That was amazing. All the plagues on Egypt, that was incredible. Now we're here alone with God. What do we do now? They don't know how to do it. And this is how it uh, parallels our story. For those of us who are the people of God, God has brought us out of our Egypt. He has delivered us from sin. And he's identified us as his people. And he has identified himself as our God. But then what? You cross the finish line of faith. You come to the place where you recognize that you are a sinner and you need a Savior. And Jesus himself is that Savior who paid the price for your sin that you couldn't pay. And God poured out his judgment for your sin on Jesus so that God could give his blessing that Jesus earned to you. You do that and then you're like, what now? How? Oh, I, I know, I know. I, I got to go to church like all the time. Um, I, I pro- yeah, I should serve in church. I got to do good things, like work hard and be good for the rest of my life. That's what I got to do. Like that, that's, now that I am a follower of Jesus, that's what I got to do. I got to, I somehow have to learn how, how to make sense out of this book. Like what am I, I'm supposed to read it regularly or something, and that's supposed to do something for me. Um, boy, we kind of get lost. We don't know what we're doing. We understand that we've been rescued, like we've, we've accessed heaven, and we've eliminated hell, But what is the point? 
And, and why, honestly, why all the rules? Like I stepped into this thing and it was so exciting and now I'm like, oh, I can't do that anymore. Oh, I can't do that anymore. I can't go there again. I, what in the world? All these things I can't do, all these things I have to do, what's the point? The people of Israel feel this way. They're brought out and we're going to look at Exodus 19 and uncover how God makes sense out of these questions for them. Look at Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they in, uh, entered the desert of Sinai and they camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Let me just give you some notes about the context here. It's now been exactly three months since they left Egypt. Really, really cool. Three months, and they're excited. They're excited. They crossed the Red Sea, and, and they're ready to go. And now they come to the base of this mountain. And this mountain, this location where they are, is the exact same place where God appeared. As we covered in week two, God appeared to Moses in the burning bush right here in this spot. So for Moses, this had to have been an amazing moment. In fact, look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. Here's what it says. God said, I will be with you, Moses, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. What a cool moment for, for Moses to receive a promise from God. Go through everything that we went through, chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, all the way up to chapter 19. And here he is in the moment. God keeps his promises. And sometimes from the promise made to the promise fulfilled, there's a lot that happens and a lot of cause for doubt, and will God come through, and what's happening in this gap, and what's happening in this gap is God's just setting us, he's just setting Moses up to show himself to be more powerful, more amazing than Moses could have imagined. God says, I, you saw how I carried you on eagle's wings. Just a quick note, um, learning how eagles teach their little ones how to fly. The eagle will fly below the little ones, and if the little ones start to fall, They'll catch them on their wings. It's just pretty cool. And God is saying, like that, I have kicked you guys out of the nest, rescued you, and I'm teaching you to fly. But I've been here every step of the way. So Mount Sinai here, God begins to shape his people. He's beginning to form this people into a people who will do something for him that is for their good. He's going to help them really step into their identity. So not only is he going to help them enjoy their life with him as the people of God, he's going to help them know what they're supposed to do, what is their role now that they've been rescued. And this brings us to the first truth about life as the people of God. We flourish under God's law. We flourish under God's law. Exodus 19, verse 5, here's what it says. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. God is not saying your identity is going to change. He's going to say people are going to see something in you that's remarkable. If you stick with me, and God hasn't even given him the law yet. In chapter 20, that's really where we kick off 
God giving them the Ten Commandments, all the rules and regulations. But God is saying, I'm going to help you flourish, and you're going to flourish by following my commands. You will be my treasured possession. God's helping them to understand that they don't know how to live with him. So he's going to help them out. And no one's good at the law. No one's good at the, None of us are good rule keepers. Either we're so good that we make our, we're all self-righteous and say, oh, I keep the rules better than everyone else. We defeat the whole purpose of the rules. Or we reject them completely because we don't want to be told what to do. So their salvation from slavery preceded the law, and that's important to notice. God isn't saying, do this and you'll have a relationship with me. He's saying, we have a relationship. Now let me help you learn how to enjoy it. And it was supposed to be this thing that if they followed God's law, it would be amazing not only for them, but other people would take notice as well. Consider these passages from Deuteronomy chapter 4. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land where you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees, the rules, and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? There's something about following the laws and the commands of God that makes other people go, whoa, how are they having a good time? (laughs) Like, there's a whole bunch of don't there that you actually feel like you want to do, and there's a whole lot of do there that you'd rather not. How is this good? I think what Scripture is doing here, what God, through this writing, is is poking some holes where we fall short. We tend to think you have to break the rules to have fun. And following the rules, that's just constraint. That's just kind of binding me up. But it goes on, chapter 4, verse 32. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm? Or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. There's something about God's rescue and giving this law, all these rules to his people that is meant to spark wonder in the eyes of people who are watching. Israel had a choice here. They could either present, follow God's laws and present them as rules to keep. This is just stuff I got to do. No, I can't go with you guys. I love God. No, I can't do that. I love God. I have to sit here and wish, be wishing I was doing all the fun things you guys are doing. God is saying, this, this is so amazing. Moses is saying, this is so amazing. You guys don't understand what you have here. You don't understand how good this is. We, the truth is, we struggle to believe that rules are good and helpful and that are actually meant to help us flourish. I just read this morning, Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18. Here's the way it begins. Do not let your heart envy sinners. Do not let your heart envy sinners. Why 
would God inspire the writing of that text? Because my heart envies people who don't know God, who just seem free to do whatever they want to do. And no problem, no big deal. You can't go, we can go. We're going to have a great time, let me tell you. If you want to have a good time, just come and join us. It's all over Scripture. Psalm 73, the psalmist is writing the whole psalm about, I can't believe I've been tricked. I've given up so much to follow God. Everyone else is having a great time, and I'm miserable. You know what the the turning point was for him? He visited the temple. He went to church, and he heard once again about the fact that he was in slavery to sin. Death and destruction were his future. Nothing good or healthy or redeeming about that situation, and God stepped in and rescued him, and he said, oh yeah, how easy I have been deceived. This is all over. James talks about it in James chapter 1, verse 22. Here's how that begins. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Follow the rules. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. James slips something in here that's really peculiar. He's talking about doing what God says, but then he says this perfect law gives freedom. How, I ask, does a law give freedom? Doesn't a law take freedom away by its nature? Think about it like this. Let's just talk about dental hygiene, brushing your teeth. We might have had this conversation before, but if I followed the law, if you will, of taking care of my teeth, brushing, flossing, mouthwashing, guess what I get? Freedom. Freedom of my schedule, not having to visit the dentist. Freedom of my diet, I can eat and chomp on whatever I want to. Freedom in my finances because I'm not directing funds toward the dentist anymore. I don't have to worry about it. If it's before me and I like it, I can eat it. Why? Because the law gives freedom. I am not constrained now by these choices that I think are going to help me, but that just feel good at the moment. No, I now have freedom. I can enjoy far more than people who don't follow the law of taking care of their teeth. I think we understand that. In fact, um, this has been a little bit easier for me to see because I'm getting older. I've got kids now. I can understand how a law that Kristen or I put into place gives freedom. My kids don't really share that understanding. Like when I say no, they don't say, what are you protecting me from and providing for me? In your immense wisdom, I know that you're just really helping me out here. You're helping me live as a free person. So when you say no, I hear, be free. Like my kids don't say that. They don't feel that way. If your kids do, I need your help. Um, because we're just not there yet. Because wired into all of us is this idea that rules are meant to control and constrain me and keep me from what is actually good and will cause me to flourish. The Israelites are in this spot, and God's saying, you need to follow the laws I'm giving. When you do, you will flourish. When God says don't, he is in fact saying don't hurt yourself. Randy Alcorn, in his book, The Purity Principle, says this, Satan's greatest victories and our biggest defeats come when he gets us to ask, should I choose what God commands me or should I do what's best for me? The very framing of the question shows how badly we're deceived. 
we will not consistently choose God's way until we come to understand that his way is always the best way. And that's a hard pill to swallow. It is a hard pill to swallow. And I would say that if you're not a follower of Jesus, you will never see the law this way. You will never, like the psalmist in Psalm 19, talk about the law of the Lord. Here's a few things he says. It refreshes my soul. He gives light to my eyes. It makes, it makes, me, it makes the simple people wise. It, it, it's sweeter than honey. It's, it's more valuable than pure gold. Does this sound like your view of God's rules, your law, or his law? If that doesn't reflect your attitude toward God's commands, the deficiency is not in God's commands. It's in the fact that you and I, if we're thinking this way, we're believing lies. That life, that flourishing can be found outside of the commands of God. It's true that we often live our lives as though we really could enjoy life if we could just do what we wanted to do. And what God is communicating here through Moses to the people of Israel is, you had it that way. It's called Egypt. Remember that, remember that place? Remember that one time three months ago when you were slaves? Remember how you groaned and cried out to me? Your nation did. You were there for 430 years and you wanted to be free. Remember that? That's what you want? We somehow think that God brought us out of that dark and dreadful place and has something worse for us? We are so easily deceived. But it's not only the law, the boundaries of God that cause us to flourish. It's also the purpose, the reason he gives us for living. We flourish inside his boundaries as we distribute his blessings. The second truth we see in Exodus 19 in this message from God to the people is this. We are saved for God's mission. We are saved for his mission. Look at the second part of verse 5 and verse 6. He says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. We are saved for God's mission. But where does this idea of mission come from here in this passage? It's actually found when God addresses them as priests. It's really interesting. There's to take on a new identity here. Now, they had a religious system that God had set up. They had priests. But God is saying, you are going to be for me a kingdom of priests. Everyone a priest. How would everyone then become a priest? And that's something we have to wrestle with. We have to ask ourselves the question, if God is identifying these people as priests, this is our story and theirs, then what does a priest do? What does a priest do? And I think in finding what a priest does, we'll figure out part of this new mission that God has given them, that he, give, uh, that he gives us as well. You see, priests stand in between people and God and help bring people closer to God. In particular, here are four things that I have found that priests actually do. The first is they're an example. Priests are an example of what it means to follow God. A priest lives his life in a different way. We understand this in probably any context. Pick your religious system, identify the priest, and you'll identify someone who's living differently from most everybody else. Okay? Kingdom of priests. They are to live differently by example. Secondly, they're to proclaim the truth of God and invite other nations to accept him. God is saying as priests, you not only are an example to the other nations, but you are to proclaim the message of my deliverance for you to other nations. 
Okay, so you're going to be an example. You're going to proclaim the message of God. The third thing they would do is intercede for the rest of the world. They're going to go to God on behalf of the rest of the world, asking God to pour out his favor, his blessing, to rescue everyone else the way they have been rescued. And the fourth thing a priest would do, not only be an example, proclaim the truth, intercede for other people, but they would keep the promises of God. They would, they would fulfill everything that God gave them to fulfill. They, they would do the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the systems that pictured the promises of God to his people. This would be a part of their life. And verse 6 ends with a command to Moses to be sure that the Israelites heard the Lord's call and then Moses immediately fulfills that command and delivers this message to the people of Israel. So Israel's assignment from God involved intermediation. They are a go-between. People don't know God. They do. They're going to go to God on behalf of these people, helping these people to step into a relationship with God. That's what they're doing. So it's interesting God didn't just bring them out of Egypt, smack them with a bunch of laws, and say, now do good. This is better for you. God delivered them from Egypt and said, these people don't have a clue. They have been so steeped in pagan religion and slavery, they don't even know who they are. I'm going to give them this law, and it's going to help them to flourish. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to send them out on mission and give them meaning and purpose for their life, and it's going to be an awesome adventure. But they're going to have to believe me that this is how they flourish, and this is what they're meant to do. They're not meant to just receive God's deliverance and then huddle and protect themselves from all the evil influences in the world. Let's just all meet together and just learn more about the Bible. Let's just learn more about God and not let dirty people out there infect us. No, 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 let's hunker down because we've been saved. We don't want to go into slavery again. No, God says, I delivered you. Now get out there and help people know me. Isaiah 49, 6, he says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant? Or it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. You're not just trying to help other Israelites understand who I am. He said, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. God wants his salvation not just to reach you so that you have a better future and your past has been forgiven. He gave you salvation so that you can help others have it as well. And here's where we see the, the meaning and the purpose for our life. There is life for them to step into that involved just more than just enjoying all that God had done for them. Oh, sing the songs of freedom. Sing the songs of redemption. Oh, praise God. He's a lion. That's, we should do that, 100%. We should also 100% get out there and help other people understand that they too can be rescued from their Egypt. He saved them for a mission a mission that fundamentally changed how they relate to and, and function among the people around them. They were in following the law to show a watching world what life with God looked like and that it was amazing. These people would flourish. There's actually, if you dig into the laws that God gave them, there's dietary laws that originally were a part of this covenant that they were to do. These people would actually end up being far healthier than the other nations around them. And other nations would look in and say, these people are blessed. They don't have all this junk that we're dealing with. I want to be a part of what's, what they're doing. And when they came a part of it, they said, we're following God. 
Here's the things that we do and don't do. He's given us his laws to help us flourish. We were delivered from sin to proclaim the message of deliverance. That's really what we're driving at here. If you are here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you have been delivered from sin so that you could proclaim the message of deliverance. Like open up your mouth and talk. Help other people understand I have been rescued. You can be rescued. I want to help you. But I don't always do that. Oh, I love the fact that I've been set free from sin. I love the fact that Jesus has paid the price for my sin. He has borne the punishment. And sometimes I don't love it enough to actually open up my mouth and tell someone else how they too could experience the rescue that I've experienced. And sometimes I look longingly at what I might be able to enjoy if I didn't have to keep God's rules. So easily deceived. My marriage to Kristen, it was just the beginning. It set me on a course that determined the shape, the trajectory, the purpose of my life. It has forever redefined how I engage with other people who are not my wife. I don't identify myself as a single entity. We are together. We are one. It it is now a part of me, and I am meant to help other people, if I do well, to look at our relationship and say, wow, I think I want something like that. I enjoy my marriage. I enjoy my relationship when I actually uphold my part of the covenant. Who'd have thought? But what we see so clearly in marriage, we can dismiss so easily in our relationship with God. We think we, what, he delivered us and now we just go back to life as normal? We would never do that. I couldn't do it in my marriage. It would fail. But we think somehow we can do that in our relationship with God. So we can whiff when it comes to the boundaries of our marriage. I can whiff on that. And I can whiff when it comes to the purpose for my marriage is to picture God's great love for us as I love Kristen and she loves me and people, brothers, sisters, here in the room, watching online, we can whiff whenever we think that God's laws or his rules are meant to somehow keep me from something good. They are good. They refresh our soul, the psalmist says. They're laws that give freedom. And we can whiff when we simply are willing to enjoy the gift that God has given us of Jesus and just hang on to it ourselves and never do what we were meant to do with it and live on mission and help other people know how they too can experience the rescue we ourselves have experienced. And God knew God knew that we would chafe against this. We would chafe against the rules and chafe against actually stepping out and living on mission. And so Peter, the apostle, Peter, follower of Jesus, reflecting and echoing the words of Exodus 19, wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2 these words. 
But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do we need more evidence that we are people who couldn't do anything for ourselves and God did it? We are people who didn't know how to even enjoy this life that we've been given and God helped us know how to enjoy it and it's found in flourishing under God's law, living on the mission that God has set out for us to live. And I wonder this morning, what lies have you believed that have kept you from enjoying and valuing and prioritizing your relationship with God? If there is a law, a rule, or constraint that you're chafing up against, it reveals the fact that you are believing a lie. Because we flourish under God's laws. I think there's probably a possibility too this morning that there could be someone here who would say, I've been living outside those boundaries for a good long time. And I want to tell you, the gate is not shut behind you. Jesus himself has perfectly kept the rules for you. And God in his love and goodness will give to you the righteousness that Jesus has and he will punish Jesus for the laws and rules that you have broken. When we search for God's blessings outside his boundaries, Jesus fills that gap. So there's still hope. And I wonder this morning, if you're willing to live on mission. One of our core values as a church is found people, find people. It's wonderful to have it up on a sign, but it's game-changing if the people, a part of it, would actually do it. And I wonder this morning how you and I can better step into that as our identity. You see, the best-case scenario of the human story can be your story this morning. Captive, chosen, redeemed, sustained, commissioned can be you if you would be willing to believe what God has said. But we need help because it is hard to believe sometimes. So would you pray with me? God, it is true that we just, I, I do struggle to believe in moments, sometimes for long periods of time, that your rules are actually good, that they're actually helpful, they're actually meant to help me flourish. And I look for your blessing outside your boundaries. And um, I'm so glad that you're a forgiving God. That you just haven't cast me off and been done with me. And you also know that at times I fail to live out the mission that I have been commissioned with. And I'm asking for your help for me this morning and for all of people who are with us this morning here help us to believe what you say is true and I pray then that we would experience all the joy and fulfillment and flourishing that we are meant to experience as we live free as the people of God for our joy and for your glory in Jesus name, amen